0: Well hello everyone, a warmest of welcome to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi, episode 26. Coming to you from sunny Albuquerque, New Mexico. This week's show is all about looking outwards, internationally, that is. My good friend and long-standing broadcaster and journalist, Andrew Hawkins, joins me from Sydney, Australia. Currently the editor for ANZ News, which one could characterize as the thoroughbred daily news of the sun hemisphere, bringing the latest news to the racing community on a daily basis. When I worked in Sydney, Australia, in racing myself, this was the first port of call every morning. With my cup of coffee, you read the ANZ news. Prior to that, he was active as a presenter at Sky Racing Australia, a reporter for the South China Morning Post, and a racing content specialist with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. When it comes to racing jurisdictions, he follows all of them. And hence, it was my pleasure to have him give the latest updates on the Australian racing scene, including the upcoming TAB Everest, which is a race that is modeled for the Stronach's Pegasus race. Of course, he elaborates on his extensive yearly Melbourne Cup preview and we go over everything Asian racing scene. Both of us hold a special place in our hearts when it comes to Hong Kong and its racing product and Hawke adds to that with some Japanese racing flair. Well, we finish off discussing the upcoming Breeders' Cup, the lack of Australian representatives and Hawke's own experience when attending slash working the 2016 Breeders' Cup. So, Let us take you on a ride across the Southern Hemisphere and Asian racing scene. Learn about the important races, the structure, the fan base, the challenges. Dive in. Andrew, I'm so glad to have you on Talk Racing to me. You've worked in nearly every racing jurisdiction. You haven't worked in the US though, have you?
1: I've been there as a journalist. I've done uh, a few meetings there and, and written about them. I've been to an Arlington Million. Actually, I've been to a couple of Arlington Millions. Um, been to a Breeders' Cup. Um, been to a Canadian International. So I've been I've been to a, a few of those race meetings, but I haven't had a chance to actually work there properly. I'd love to one day, um, but obviously we need this pandemic to go away before that uh, can possibly happen.
0: America would be lucky to have you. <laughs> But let's get started on your home base, Australia. There is a couple of big weekends coming up. One of them, the TAB Everest this Saturday. Now, for the local listeners here, what is the Everest? And, you know, who's in it? And what can we expect from this?
1: So the Everest is modeled off uh, the Pegasus that was uh, introduced by Stronach. Uh, what, three or four years ago. Uh, and the Everest is basically the same idea, except uh, probably where the Pegasus hasn't uh, managed to keep the uh, the, the traction going. Um, obviously, prize money has been reduced uh, for the Pegasus. They've introduced a turf equivalent. But uh, the Everest has managed to go from strength to strength. Um, basically, slot holders bought a slot for three years, and uh, this is now the fourth year that most of the slot holders have carried over. Um, after those three years. So uh, essentially, you've got uh, 12 slot holders. They all get to choose a horse, and it's run over 1,200 metres at Randwick, uh, six furlongs uh, for those uh, playing with the imperial distances. And the thing is, is that it's um, trying to play to Australia's strengths. Uh, obviously, Australia really good at producing sprinters um, and usually has quite good depth among the sprinters. So that's where the interest lies. Um, the other thing as well is that uh, Sydney has traditionally been second fiddle uh, during the uh, spring carnival. So obviously being in the Southern Hemisphere, we're currently in the the spring here. And uh, the Southern Hemisphere spring is usually all about Melbourne. Um, Melbourne has most of the big races, but uh, Peter Volandis, who's in charge of racing New South Wales, decided that he wanted Sydney to have a bit more uh, of a focus and a bit more uh, of a a big carnival during the spring. And so they launched the Everest in 2017, and uh, it's been a resounding success. Um, even for those like myself who thought that it may not work, um, you have to say it's worked. And so uh, we get to see some of the best sprinters going around. Now, this year it's fallen away a little bit compared to years gone by. But uh, we still get to see the Australian Horse of the Year in Nature Strip going around. Um, we get to see horses like Libertini, who's a, a filly on the way up Um, and Jitra, who is a horse who uh, uh, won a Group 1 at Flemington uh, earlier in the year and actually beat Nature Strip first up, and a classic legend who's a Hong Kong-owned horse who's uh, been a a real popular horse down here, a grey who just uh, keeps uh, seeming to find... Um, uh, another level each preparation that he steps out. So um, we get to see some of those horses going around. They're horses that people on the world stage might have some idea about. Um, also a horse called Santa Ana Lane, who's a uh, five or six-time uh, grade one winner. Um, it's going to be a good race. I'm looking forward to it. So that uh, comes up Friday night, American time, Saturday, uh, Australian time. And uh, if you haven't watched Everest yet, it's definitely worth tuning in.
0: You said at the beginning that you were slightly sceptical of the Everest concept. Why is that?
1: Because uh, it's a different type of concept. Uh, I didn't know whether you'd have the buy-in from people um, to be able to maintain that slot structure. Um, It it is a really significant investment from uh, people to be able to maintain their slots. Um, It's $600,000 Australian dollars a year. So that was $1.8 million over three years. And to be able to maintain that investment without really seeing a return on investment, um, you needed to finish in I think it was the top three or the top four to be able to actually see a return on investment. Um, I didn't know whether uh, people would be willing to uh, invest, but the thing is, is that people are loving the idea. They're getting a lot of publicity that they wouldn't have otherwise got. Um, People are talking about the Everest year round here in Australia, and I think that's been um, one of the real success stories. So. I will freely admit that I thought that it was going to not succeed and I was wrong. And you love being wrong when you see ideas proving to really excel and proving to really bring a new audience to racing. It's really quite exciting.
0: Well, when looking at Australia, that seems to be a key aspect that they really know how to leverage publicity and draw a younger audience. Audience, in how do you think they've done that? Because it seems to be the envy of all the other raising industries across the world.
1: Well, especially in the Western world, I definitely think uh, if you look at some of the industries in Asia, they've probably done an even better job. Um, but I think Australia is lucky in that it's been so ingrained in our culture for so long. Um, it, it was a big part of um, Australia expanding um, in the eighteen uh, hundreds. Um, Australia was. First settled by the British in in 1788, and and horseback and and the use of horses was really important um, in our culture, and so because of that, it's uh, been something that I think has really endured. Now there is. Uh, a growing element of, of younger people coming through who are uh, more socially aware and because of that um, there is less of a, a link with racing than there has been and I'm you're, you're starting to see that really play out um, amongst uh, particularly people under the age of 30 35 or so um, there's there's less of a, a young audience there um, but the thing is is that Racing gets a lot of opportunities here in the mainstream media that it probably doesn't get elsewhere. And I think that's a really big uh, part of being able to draw new audiences in. Um, again, I think if you look at some of the, the countries in Asia, I think they do better at being able to, to grow a love of the sport rather than a love of the, the race day. But um, Australia does really well at getting people there for the, the whole experience, the whole social, fashion, um, a party, um, and the racing experience as well.
0: We'll definitely touch upon your knowledge of the Asian racing scene and how well they do over there, because it is an absolute phenomenon that we've both got the pleasure to experience ourselves. Just looking at the Australian racing structure, of course, in the United States, we have the claiming races, you have the handicapping system, as well as the weight for age scale. Would you be able to explain to people that aren't familiar with it what it is for and that there are a fair few Group 1 races, so top elite level races, that employ this meth- method to basically uh, hand out the weights and, and equalize the field?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, handicapping, uh, the handicapping system basically assigns each horse a rating and uh, allows uh, you to run in certain races depending on your rating. Um, and so, uh, a low rating here would probably be something in the 40s or 50s. Um, generally, a a poorer race would be something like a 0 to 58 race, um, whereas you look at a horse like Winks, I think her rating uh, from memory was in the 120s, might have got up towards 130. And so uh, you look at that as being an opportunity then uh, to be able to uh, handicap horses. As you say, um, for us, Handicapping doesn't mean the same thing that it does in the US. It's not about um, assessing the form, so to speak, but uh, handicapping for us is much more about um, uh, what the uh, administrators do in terms of finalising the field. So for a, a handicap here, um, that rating usually is the equivalent of um, half a kilogram. So it's it's sort of similar to, to what that rating would be in pounds. Um, and so uh, each a horse for one point will lose a kilogram. So a horse that's rated 96 and a horse that's rated um, 94, there'd be a kilogram separating them, um, which is close enough to two pounds. I think it's 2.2 pounds to be exact. But uh, it's just about, as you said, equalizing the field and being able to to ensure that um, theoretically, every horse should have the same chance of winning. Now, it doesn't work out that way, Far from uh, perfect, but when you see seven or eight horses across the uh, across the line at a finish, uh, and you know there's there's less than a half length separating them, the the handicap is generally thought to have done a pretty good job.
0: The reason I mentioned the weight for age age scale is because it's slightly different in the Southern Hemisphere than what they do up north. How does it work with the two year olds and three year olds competing against older horses?
1: Yeah, so here in Australia, there is actually the opportunity in some stakes races, particularly some group ones, um, that two-year-olds can actually compete against the older horses. It does happen in the UK as well in races like the Nunthorpe, um, but we did see last season a filly called Waygame, Game, um, who was one of the top two-year-old fillies. She uh, raced against the older fillies, mares. Um, but I, again, you do see it more often here, um, especially the three-year-olds taking on the older horses. You'll see that from very early on in the season. Um, you'll see, for instance, there's a a... Um, group one sprint at Mooney Valley uh, coming up in about 10 days time. And you'll see three-year-olds there against the older horses, even though um, for us, our season starts in August. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're only, they, they turned three, what, two months ago. Um, but because of the weight for age scale, there there is the opportunity there for them to to carry less weight and still uh, uh, be tested against the older horses. And to be frank, the three-year-olds generally are, are well suited under weight for age.
0: Absolutely. Of course, we've seen three-year-olds compete in the big race coming up in the Melbourne Cup as well, right?
1: We have. Uh, not so much Southern Hemisphere three-year-olds, um, although uh, you look back. I think it was 25 years ago. Uh, nothing like a Dane was a horse who ran second as a Southern Hemisphere three-year-old. So again, he'd only just turned three uh, in the last couple of months before he ran in a Melbourne Cup, which is uh, you know two miles, um, uh, generally considered quite a tough two miles as well. So that's that's pretty um, astonishing. Um, but these days, not so much the Southern Hemisphere three-year-olds, um, but the Northern Hemisphere three-year-olds do. Um, come down quite a bit, so they're considered four-year-olds under our system um, because um, they've got that extra three, um, that, that extra six months on them. But um, the thing is, they're also treated differently under weight for age, and it's all it's all quite uh, quite uh, uh, complex in terms of the way that they figure out the field. For the Melbourne Cup, it's all about how far below weight for age their handicap mark is, and so uh, that determines the final field. And so, a horse like Uh, Santiago, who won the Irish Derby, he gets in pretty well um, because he's only carrying very little below weight for age, um, even though he's down in the weights.
0: So the reason I teed you up on the Melbourne Cup is because, as you just highlighted, your historical knowledge of the race is incredible. Of course, the Melbourne Cup run every first Tuesday of November. Uh, normally i mean I, I did see some stats that uh, during world war ii it was run on saturdays i do believe
1: that's correct yeah
0: and so this year see, we're closing in on november i don't know where the year is gone because it feels to me like it's still march um uh, but the race is coming up again derby winner anthony van dyck european so epson derby winner anthony Darby, Jesus. Oh God, this is my American influence. Darby
1: winner. <laughs> no, you know I, I struggle. Whenever I get into, into between them, I I I'll start saying the Kentucky Derby and I'll start saying the Epsom Derby. And it, it you just can't get it out of your mind.
0: I just did it. So yeah, Darby winner Anthony van Dyke, He heads the weights at um 58 and a half kilograms. But tell me. Before we sort of dive into some of the interesting horses coming up, I know the field hasn't fully taken shape yet, but tell me what the first year was that you started handicapping the Melbourne Cup because your extensive previews are quite legendary.
1: That's uh, I'm very proud of them, and I can say that uh, if you've never watched a Melbourne Cup before and you've never read one of my previews, this year's preview is going to be the most epic yet. Um, we're already working on it, um, and it's going to be it's going to be something special. So I'm really really proud of what we're putting together this year. Um, but uh, look, for me, I first remember watching it um, vividly when I was six. No, I must have just turned seven. It was 1997. It was a photo finish between Might and Power and Doremus. And if you've never seen that race, um, go and have a look at the 1997 Melbourne Cup. It's uh, really quite something. Um, it uh, was really the thing that got me um, interested in racing. Um, obviously, a passion for it developed down the line. But every year since then, I've, I've definitely um, watched the race, always tried to find the winner. Um, I first went to the Melbourne Cup in 2006. Uh, the Japanese quenelle the race that year. And then uh, after that, um, I've been doing an extensive preview now for about a decade. But um, in terms of actually thoroughly doing the form, probably the last 15 years.
0: So where can people find this preview?
1: Well, this one's being produced uh, through ANZ Bloodstock News, which is uh, my current employer. And uh, they'll be able to find it on my Twitter, Andrew NJ Hawkins. It will be up uh, probably... Uh, well, it's the Saturday before and in the U.S. it'll probably be about, oh, it'll be early to mid-morning on the Saturday before the Melbourne Cup. So that's the 31st of October. Keep an eye on Twitter. You'll see it there for sure.
0: I'll definitely make sure to point everyone in the right direction because the Melbourne Cup is coined as the race that stops the nation. Although I do remember people love to say, oh, the race that stops the world, officially the race that stops the nation because is it a, a day off as well?
1: It is in Victoria. So in the state of Victoria, which is uh, where Melbourne is, um, it is a day off. But uh, it's one of these things that um, businesses come to a complete stop at uh, 3 o'clock, which is when the race is run, and people um, just just clamber to get around to TV and watch the race. Um, Again, it's probably lost a little bit of interest in the last couple of years as, as animal rights activists have, have started to really try and push their agenda um, around Melbourne Cup time. Um, but it still is the race that stops the nation. And actually, to be fair, it's probably better known as the, the race that stops two nations because New Zealand as well is renowned for coming to a halt to watch the race. So um, in this part of the world, there really is none bigger than the Melbourne Cup. It is, um, even if it's not the highest quality race, it's the race that really generates the most attention.
0: Yes, uh, I, I got the pleasure of attending once myself, and it was quite the experience. I know that was, of course, this year. I'm assuming it will be run with limited amount of spectators. Am I correct in that?
1: Yes. Um, Melbourne's still under quite a severe lockdown here uh, in Australia, and so um, – there's still some hope that owners may be able to attend. And I think that they're they're making a last ditch effort to try and have uh, a limited crowd, but normally they'd have uh, in excess of a hundred thousand people at Flemington. Um, You'd be lucky if you got more than 10,000 people. And to be frank, the way that Victoria is at the moment, I think you you might almost be lucky if you had a thousand people there.
0: Oh, wow. I certainly hope that the owners still get the chance to watch their own horses run as it's, you know, such a pivotal race and such a proud moment to have a horse in your colors uh, appear as one of the 24 horses in the field. Now, you were saying that the profile of the race has slightly been diminished, partly because of uh, animal rights activists being very active. I remember even the, the Melbourne Cup parade, which they do the, you know, all the connections drive down in cars, that there's been a very heavy presence Of the animal rights activists and this is obviously something that we're very familiar with in the united states so how is australia's racing fraternity dealing with this
1: yeah it's been very tough um because the problem is is that a lot of the facts in quotation marks um, that they put out um aren't really either accurate or they're, um, you know, they, they they play on an emotional narrative that just simply doesn't exist. And so um, it's very difficult to fight that with facts. Um, the one thing that the Australian industry is doing is that there is a task force at the moment trying to um, come up with a number of things that they can do um, around uh, horse welfare, around traceability. So, what happens to horses once they uh, are retired from racing? Um, just to be able to have guidelines for if horses, uh, or for, for where horses end up uh, post-racing, and being able to ensure that that um, that uh, there are clear guidelines in place from the moment a horse is foaled. Right through to the end of its life, so um, I think that's going to be a real positive. It's a, a, you know, a working group, um, a, a horse welfare working group, um, being led by some some of the um, leading players in the industry, and I think that's going to be that's going to be really crucial. Um, but the thing is, it's it is a really tough one. Um, you know, I know people my age who um, are, are very much against horse racing. They don't know the facts, but they they've been fed this emotional um, narrative um, that that pulls at the heartstrings isn't accurate at all but it, it, they they thoroughly believe that it's completely cruel and that uh, people who race horses are greedy and uh, money hungry and have no care for or, or compassion for anything and um, we both know that's not true um, the people who will be listening to this know that's not true but it's it's a really difficult uh, narrative to be able to fight.
0: Yeah, well, the same applies here in the United States where, of course, safety and health of all participants, so the horses as well as all the staff involved, are paramount. Going back to the Melbourne's Cup profile, is it also possible that there's been some calls that it's not as, not as popular anymore because there's been a lot of overseas raiders coming in, especially from Europe?
1: Yeah, that's some part of it. The, the allure of the Melbourne Cup was always that because it was a handicap and it was um, very widespread handicap. You'd get um, you know thirty, thirty five pounds between horses in the weights. Um, that you'd get fairy tale stories. Now, that wasn't completely accurate. You'd still have um, um, horses that were owned by millionaires fighting it out, um, but it was a narrative that was able to uh really build the allure of the melbourne cup like if you go back to 1999 there was a horse that won it called rogan josh Um, he was a horse from western australia owned by a school teacher from darwin and um you know the thought that a horse from perth which is probably you know it's it's well down the pecking order in terms of uh racing uh superiority here in australia although that's changing there's it's likely that the Perth horse might be favorite for the Cox Plate next week but um but generally Perth racing isn't on the same level as Sydney Melbourne to a lesser extent Brisbane and um so the the idea that a horse could come from those humble beginnings and still be able to to beat um you know he beat a horse of Godolphin's and um that's less likely these days now it can still happen but the thing is is that the race is dominated by horses um raced by coolmore by godolphin Um, lloyd williams raced a lot of um, former coolmore horses Um, there is a lot more uh, of these horses being bought for the race and so you you aren't seeing as many of these uh fairy tale stories as they they once were so to speak
0: yeah and just getting back to the australian sort of Racing scene itself. Before we move on to to some of the other racing jurisdictions, that I'd love to hear your opinion about. Looking in from an outsider point of view, now I obviously know the racing scene myself, having been very fortunate to have lived in Sydney. But it's always believed that in Australia, everything is about your turf sprinters, and you know, your tightly bunched, uh, short duration sprints, and you know, bulky yearlings. Uh, how do you look? on that or what is your take on this?
1: Well, it's um, definitely the case. I mean, uh, look, Australia has uh, definitely got a breeding industry geared towards sprinters. Um, Our our best stallions uh, produce sprinting horses, including those that succeed on the world stage. Um, You also look at the facts. I think a a big part of it is that – Australia is big on syndication. So you've got a lot of people that are involved in, in horse racing. I, I think the stat is that it's like one in 200 people, uh, one in every 200 people in Australia has a share in a racehorse. But because of that, they, they, they're small shares. People want a quick return on their investment. So it plays that you'd want a horse that's going to be precocious early and that's going to generally be a sprinter. Um, you know, if you, if you have horses that are going to, to stay Um, generally they need a lot more time, um, a lot more patience and the game, the game down here really isn't geared towards patience. Even though our big races are like the Melbourne cup, the Caulfield cup, um, those are obviously some of our biggest prize money races. Um, generally the program is much more geared towards sprinters and stayers. And that's the case from the moment horses are foaled right through until they're, they're retired.
0: That's possibly also the reason why the Golden Slipper, which is one of the biggest two-year-old races in the country, takes center stage.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Golden Slipper really is the uh, it, it's the pinnacle, especially from a breeding perspective, because um, you know you're looking for a horse that's going to produce that precocity. So we've just seen a capitalist who won the uh, the race in 2016, uh, 2015, 2016. Oh, my memory's failing me now. But um, he's just produced his first uh, his first two year olds, and so uh, you know you're, you're obviously looking for that that horse that's going to be able to produce two year olds. And and the Golden Slipper, um, it's the richest juvenile race in the world, and there's a reason that um, it's so highly prized.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll uh, leave Australia be for now, even though you're still living there. So uh, I have to come and visit when this quarantine stuff ends. Let's chat about your home away from home. You were a reporter for the South China Morning Post, as well as a racing content specialist with the Hong Kong Jockey Club in Hong Kong, as the name suggests, Uh, an incredibly interesting horse racing place that can nearly be characterized as a bubble. How would you look back on your time out there?
1: Hong Kong will always uh, hold a really special place in my heart. Um, Look, I I was very lucky to spend a lot of time there. Um, But I think the thing is, like Australia, Hong Kong really has racing as a part of its culture and it's really ingrained in the culture there. Um, You know, I don't really want to get into too much of the political stuff uh, there because there is a lot of it. But um, looking at historically, um, I think it really was a way that the... um, british who colonized uh, hong kong um going back to the 1860s and um the the chinese locals were able to have a common interest um again uh, you know there, there's a lot a lot of issues there with british colonization and um a lot of issues with uh, the political landscape both historically and currently in hong kong but i think that that's really important to be able to understand why Hong Kong is such a uh, racing mecca because it has become such a part of its culture. And then, in recent years, they've really been able to take that um, that culture and that 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 love for horse racing into a far global, a far more global uh, environment. And uh, I think that's where Hong Kong at the moment really is uh, one of the pinnacles of world racing uh, anywhere in the world.
0: They very much attract some of the world's elite horses now two racecourses, Sha Tin and Happy Valley, both very different in their layout as well as the kind of audience that they attract. Uh, how would you characterize a typical race day at both tracks?
1: That's a good question. I've always said to, to me that uh, Happy Valley is the soul of Hong Kong racing and Sha tins the substance. Um, Happy Valley uh, is where you well, well, generally, not in a in a non pandemic world, um, you'll get a lot of the um, uh, the, the atmosphere. Uh, obviously, an incredible track. Uh, if you've never been to Happy Valley or you've never seen it, um, it's really uh, unique in in terms of world racing. It's it's right in the, in the center of um, Hong Kong itself, and um, just surrounded by um, apartment buildings and office buildings all the way around. It's it's a real true cityscape. And it's a really tight track, um, very similar to a lot of the, um, the the tracks you'd see in the States, actually. Um, and so it's definitely worth watching Happy Valley. It's, um, it's incredible. Um, again, it's usually your midweek uh, night venue. And so um, while you don't – while it's not always a hard and fast rule, you generally don't get the better horses at Happy Valley. And if they do come to Happy Valley, it will only be um, once – in a while um, because the races just aren't scheduled for them. But you will get horses that are on the way through, on the way up, um, potentially um, stepping out there before they then head to Shartin and contest better races. Um, But Shartin, it is the substance. It's where you have um, all bar one of the stakes races. Um, You get the better horses there, far more spacious course. And, uh, yeah, it is a different environment. Um, It also has a dirt track there as well. Um, We did see... Um, a horse graced the dirt there called Rich Tapestry who went over and won a uh, grade one in the US, won the Santa Anita Sprint Championship which is no longer a grade one but it was a grade one when he won it, he beat Golden Sense going back about uh, six years so um, you can produce dirt horses there in Hong Kong as well but um, generally of course turf racing is where uh, most of the um, most of the the expertise and most of the uh, speciality lies. So um, I think uh, if you ever get a chance to go to, to either Tin or Happy Valley, you'll be blown away by just one uh, experience you have there.
0: So Happy Valley isn't necessarily the pinnacle of sort of the higher class races, but they do hold the International Jockey Challenge there, though, don't they?
1: Yeah, that's right. So the uh, IJC is held uh, the Wednesday before the Hong Kong International Races. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do this year. Uh, I know that there is some talk of doing something different because uh, obviously uh, COVID is making things quite tough. Um, and there has also been a, an idea that they may try and change up um, the uh, dynamics of what they do because there is some concern um, that it isn't always the fairest system the way that they, it's conducted uh, currently. But uh, it is a great night. Um, it's a really... Um a special night to see some of those really top-notch jockeys from around the world going head-to-head around uh, what is one of the most exciting racetracks in the, in, in the world. Um, and so really, uh, if you ever get a chance to go to an IJC and then do the uh, international race on the Sunday, it is, um, there is a reason why so many people from around the world use it as their uh, end-of-year experience.
0: So how does it work with the point system? What do you need to do as a jockey to win the International Jockeys Challenge?
1: So it's four races, and the mounts are allocated randomly. Um, they're allocated at a breakfast on the Monday before, um, where uh, jockeys are chosen at random, and then they they feel the, the they feel the first horse that they can make the weight for. So um, some jockeys who are there can obviously ride down as low as one thirteen pounds. Others can't ride uh, anything below one twenty three, and so it just allocate whichever is the the lowest um, weighted horse available. And um, you know, it's a 12-6-4 uh, system, which is the way that the Jockey Challenge works there in, in Hong Kong. They have a Jockey Challenge bet, um, which awards uh, 12 points for first, six points for second, four points for third, and it awards it across every race, and you can bet on which jockey will end up with the most points at the end of the, of the uh, meeting. Uh, so that occurs on every meeting, but that's used for the IJC uh, contest as well, just across the four races that they have. So um, 12, 6, and 4... Um, uh 12, 6 and 4 points awarded for each race and obviously whoever has the most uh, ends up winning.
0: Who are some of the big-name jockeys that have ridden in it and have won it in the past years?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, basically who's who of the big-name jockeys have ridden in it, um, you know, and, and we're talking right across the world. Frankie Tore's obviously uh obviously been successful in the past. Christophe Soumion has been uh, been successful in the past at Keren McAvoy um, I remember actually the, my favourite uh, jockey that I've ever seen come out um, was a Rad Ortiz Jr and the reason that he was my favourite was because he got the worst book of rides I've ever seen um, he got an absolutely no hopers book of rides um, he rode a horse um, I think it was Oriental Fantasia was the name of the horse who oh no maybe it wasn't Oriental Fantasia it might have been another anyway the horse that he had uh, was over 1,650 metres, um, so over an extended mile, and this horse just couldn't run beyond five furlongs. He was a five furlong um, uh, specialist. And he still managed to get the horse to run seventh of 12, which was an absolute extraordinary effort. I still don't know how he did it. So he got no points, um, but the attitude that he had and also the fact that you know he embraced the experience, I just, for me... Rattle Tears Jr. was was my favorite of any jockey that I saw during my time there.
0: Well, one of the best current riders in the United States. So you're not just talking about any jockey. I'd have to agree with you there. Tell me a little bit about the Hong Kong International races.
1: So four uh, races, four big uh, turf races over uh, 1,200 meters or six furlongs, uh, 1,600 meters or a mile, um, 2,000 meters, a mile and a quarter, and uh, 2,400 meters, a mile and a half. And so, uh, um, you know, it's a a contest between uh, the best that Hong Kong has to offer and also um, horses that that are at the end of their season uh, in the Northern Hemisphere tend to come out as well, Um, and you get sometimes Australian horses as well or horses that are going home after the Melbourne Cup. Um, And so you get some really good contests. Um, Look, it's always a matter of um, who you get from abroad that really entices and, and, and spices up these races. But Japan normally sends a really strong raiding party. Um, we've had, or uh, well, they've had horses from um, it, almost any racing country you can think of. I remember there was a horse from Denmark that managed to run third in a in one of the group ones one year. Um, the Americans have had horses go before. Um, uh, I remember Dale Roman sending a horse over uh, about five years ago. Um, and so it, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a real end of year celebration for the racing industry worldwide
0: it's so much fun to attend now you mentioned japanese racing the land of the rising sun quite elusive for a lot of people uh dare say tough to follow in a way but you are much more familiar with it and highlighted earlier how they really have an incredible fan base uh what what has your japanese experience been like
1: For me, Japan is the um, ultimate in world racing. I don't think anywhere is able to match what the Japanese have done. Um, There's a few reasons for that. Um, Firstly, they've really got a public awareness that is just beyond anywhere else in the world. And by that, I mean, okay, in the US, you've got um, people will see mainstream media coverage of the Kentucky Derby or the Breeders' Cup to a lesser extent, Australia, you know, you'll see it around the Everest and the Melbourne Cup and and the big races. But week in week out, um, there is such a knowledge of what's happening with racing, and um, you see it, you see it um, in every um, part of the of, of Japanese culture. You'll see uh, racing mentioned uh, in. On trains, you'll see you'll see advertising for racing, and you'll see advertising for, uh, or you'll see racing news um, on their on their billboards and things like that. Um, you see it really become something that they're talking about in the same way that you know you you'll see in the states they'll talk about the big four sports, or in Australia they'll talk about cricket and rugby league and rugby union and AFL. Um, racing is probably one of three or four sports in Japan that really enjoys that sort of privilege and that that sort of coverage. Um, so it, with, that, with that captive fan base, it's uh, already at such an advantage. But um, Japan does it really well as well. Um, you've got two different organisations that run racing in Japan. You've got the JRA, which is very much the federal um, body, uh, the federal government body, in Japan and they have that higher level of racing. That's where you see most of the good horses come from the JRA circuit, but they've also got the NAR, which is run on a local basis and, um, which holds racing during the week. And, and again, it's, it's much lower prize money, um, generally all on dirt, but it's, it's, um, it's just a, it's a model that really works. There's a lot of interest. Um, it's rare that you'll see a race meeting held, um, without a, a big crowd present, um, they really advertise well. They they all, uh, attract different types of audiences. You'll see their toys. I know, I know um, you've obviously seen um, some of the plushy toys that people have.
0: They um, love them. Okay,
1: <laughs> they 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 just have a way of being able to target so many different um, aspects of the fan base, um, from the casual fan right through to the the serious uh, uh, horse player. And it's just it's it's. Really quite marvellous to watch. And that all aside, what they've done so well in the last 40 years is develop their their horse um, quality to the point where they're now on par with any jurisdiction around the world. Um, it's It's really one of the true success stories of racing. And it's worth, if you don't know much about Japan, it's worth watching them to see what they do because it is really quite astounding.
0: How can you watch Japanese racing? It's quite tricky sometimes, isn't it?
1: It is quite tricky, um, and it's also very difficult because in terms of exporting their product, um, especially with the JRA, they only usually allow wagering on their product if it's a Group 1 meeting um, around the world, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll send their their meetings around the world if it's a Group 1 meeting. So um, that means that for the next few weeks there are going to be Japanese meetings available through um, ADWs in the in the US and um, if you're in Australia, you know, being able to w- watch it through Sky Racing and things like that um, because there are Group 1 races for most of the next few weeks. Um, they're in their sort of uh, – their, their uh, full program there. Um, but if you don't uh, – you know, if you don't have the ability to watch those Group One meetings, there is a way. I'd say through uh, Twitter, if you are on Twitter, um, following um, Graham Pavey uh, at longball to No One. He is phenomenal with his Japanese replays and and keeping you up to date with what's happening in Japan. And also, um, all, uh, Kate Hunter, the um, Kate, uh, obviously an American native, but she's been living in uh, the. Um, in in Japan for for the last decade or so, and she's she's brilliant as well. So, um, between the two of them, you really get a good knowledge of what's happening there in Japan, and uh, they're also willing to answer questions, and they're really they're really approachable.
0: Yeah, Kate Hunter is marvellous. She was my translator in Dubai when I was trying to interview some of the Japanese contingent, and she's fluent and knows the scene like the back of her hand. What are some of the bigger race courses and races that people should watch out for? I know Tokyo, Nakayama, Kyoto.
1: Yes, so uh, Tokyo um, race course is where the Japan Cups held, um, also the Japanese Derby um, but the uh, japan cup coming up in uh, about six weeks or so uh, that will be at uh, tokyo Racecourse. um nakayama hosts the satsuki show which is the equivalent of their 2000 guineas it's their sort of first leg of their triple crown um it also hosts a number of their big races including the arima Kinen, which is in japan considered to be the biggest race of the year um even bigger than the japan cup um nakayama is actually not far from tokyo it's it's in the tokyo larger metropolitan area um, Kyoto, you mentioned they're holding the, um, at the Kakuka show, which is the third leg of their triple crown. Um, we'll get to see a horse called Contrail trying to make it, um, three, uh, to, they're trying to t- clean sweep the triple crown there in Japan. And, um, he looks to be deep impact successor. If you haven't seen Contrail race, I swear, have a look at him. He is an absolute beast of a horse, amazing horse to watch. And, uh, if he can be as successful as his sire in the uh, breeding barn. He's going to be the future racing in the next 15 years, Contrail. Um, but other race courses that they have as well, Chukyo, which is down in Nagoya. Um, they've also got Hanshin, which is down in Osaka. It hosts a race called the Takarazuka Kinen, um, which is sort of the the middle of the year finale. Um, you've got uh, Sapporo uh, up in Hokkaido, which is amongst uh, where all the breeding farms are. They're up in uh, on the island of Hokkaido. Um, which is the, the big northern island in Japan. Um, yeah, there are, there are a few of them there. I'm, I'm trying to think what else uh, I might have missed. Nagata is another big racetrack that they have. Um, I, I look, I'm sure I've missed a few, but uh, um, there are plenty of racetracks there and uh, plenty of really good tracks as well. But uh, Tokyo, uh, Nakayama, Kyoto, Hanshin, they're sort of the four really big ones.
0: Where have you been?
1: In Japan. Hmm. Um, okay, I've been to Nakayama a few times. Um, I was actually at Nakayama. I saw Contra when he's first Group 1 in the uh, Hopeful Stakes uh, between Christmas and New Year. Um, I've been to Chukyo. I was there for a Takamatsu Kinen. Um Where else have I been? I've been to Hanshin. I've been to the Takarazuka Kinen twice. Um, I've been to Tokyo. I've been to a Japan Cup. Um, I was there when uh, Cheval Grand won the Japan Cup. Uh, going back about three years or so um i feel like i've been to one other but it's eluding me at the moment but i've definitely been to those that i've mentioned
0: wow hulk i have to come and join you on the trip sometime soon it's still one of my goals to experience racing in japan because as you mentioned i've seen the videos of the crowds it's incredible it's like a kentucky derby but then every weekend it seems to be
1: exactly and that's the thing it's it's worth it's definitely worth waiting until um, crowds return because it is the crowds that really make that atmosphere. And the thing is, they're there from the first race, which is generally about ten thirty, eleven o'clock on, on a Sunday or a Saturday, depending on which day you're there. And they're right there through till um, the meeting meeting comes to an end. So it's it's worthwhile and it's just such an experience. It really leaves you with a passion for racing that i don't think is possible anywhere else it's it's just it it fills the soul with um pride for what what we do and what we work in
0: certainly a trip that's on the bucket list for me so for the americans if they make one trip after quarantine gets lifted i mean we're looking ahead here right we have we, we need to have something to hope for where should they go what do you think is the most amazing track that people should experience?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. I've been very lucky to experience some great racetracks around the world. Um, I mean, I think that I'm always going to be biased towards Flemington and the Melbourne Cup. Um, But I think that if you are going for a racing trip, um, it's probably worthwhile trying to do um, the double that they have in Japan at the end of the year. They have the Arima Kinen, which is the fan-voted race, um, which features most of their best horses on um, one day and a day somewhere around there, whether it's the next day or the next week, they have um, the two year old group one the hopeful Stakes, which is sort of the the stepping stone towards the three year old classics the next year. Um, you know that's that's held in in um, uh, they're, they're both at Nakayama, so just outside of Tokyo. um Nakayama's a great little course. And the other thing too about it is that it's uh, obviously in their winter there, you can you can combine it with uh, doing a snow trip, whatever you wish. Um, I know my mum and I went and saw the snow monkeys in Nagano a um, uh, couple of days after going and seeing uh, Contra win the hopeful stakes. And it was just, it was the most amazing trip and and really a good trip to do, especially now that uh, we're stuck and uh, not being able to travel. It's, uh, it's nice to remember what that was like.
0: Yeah, we're all living off of our previous travel memories, hoping that at some point we can leave the country again. Now, before I let you go, locally, the Breeders' Cup is coming up first weekend of November. Now, that's a carnival that the Euros have done particularly well at, but the Australians haven't been very active. What do you think is one of the main reasons for this? Um,
1: A few reasons. Um, One, travel's difficult to the States at any time. Um, I remember a few years ago, they were looking at taking a mare called Ascadelia over and uh, the flight plan that they were going to have to undertake um, was too difficult. Um, I think she was going to actually go to the the last Breeders' Cup, the first one that was at Keeneland. Um, and from memory, they were going to have to fly her via Hawaii, via, by Anchorage, and then into um Cincinnati I think it was and then uh, then down to Keeneland so it it was very difficult and very arduous to be able to get the to to make the trip um but the the main reason is is that it's uh, right in the middle of our spring which is our best time of the year of racing Australia um huge prize money on offer here um and to the local breeding industry really it's it's more important to us than a breeder's cup so um if you're trying to create a future in Australia having success during the Melbourne spring or the Sydney spring these days as well, is going to outweigh success at a Breeders' Cup. So um, really there's no justification to send horses there if they're racing in Australia. Now, we have seen Australian horses go over having raced in Australia and then joined European stables. I know Starcraft ran in a Breeders' Cup Classic for Luca Cumani. Um, So you think ran in a Breeders' Cup Classic for Aidan O'Brien. Star Spangled Banner, I think, ran in a turf sprint when also trained by Aidan O'Brien. Um, so we have seen horses that are bred in Australia and New Zealand going over there, and uh, I know that, uh, well, I don't know if she's still going there, but I know that um, uh, that mare of uh, Team Valors, Alexandra, who's Australian bred, she's meant to be going around in the turf sprint. So um, you do see Australian breds there, as you see New Zealand breds there as well, but um, generally you're not going to see Australian-trained horses there. Um, this year was actually meant to be the first time with Conte Passero, but uh, unfortunately uh, she's uh, injured, so she'll instead just go through the the um, uh, Keeneland uh, broodmare sale a couple of days later.
0: I was going to say another casualty of 2020, but <laughs> 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 unfortunately the world calendar of racing carnivals doesn't always align, which is very understandable, especially with – southern hemisphere Uh, have you been to the breeders cup yourself yet Hop? uh
1: yes i have so i was there in 2016 yes 2016 and that was a santa anita um i well it was it was amazing it was it was a whirlwind week i came across from hong kong and and my my family was actually there because they'd been they'd been in new york um and so we met up in la and it was one of those weeks where i tried to fit in everything so i was going to santa anita track work in the morning then i was going and doing touristy stuff even though i'd been to l.a before but we went to disneyland we went to universal studios and um anyone who's been to la knows just how far santa anita is from disneyland you're literally talking you know up from pasadena down to to anaheim and um i was spent by the time Oh, with the
0: traffic, it's it's horrendous.
1: Oh, it was it was horrific, and I don't know why I thought I was able to do that. um, (laughs) Look, it was—I mean, it was a it was a great Breeders' Cup to be at. Um, You know that classic was uh, insane between um, California Chrome and Arrogate. Arrogate, obviously, getting the win. Um, The uh, distaff the day before was phenomenal. That was um, uh, Beholder uh, getting. The photo, from memory, she got the photo, didn't she? I'd have to go back. Yeah. and Beholder bird, versus
0: cause... Songbird. Yeah, Beholder won.
1: Yes, it was. It was Beholder, Songbird, and um, um, Beholder just got the photo. But, um, yeah, it was it was a great Breeders' Cup to be at. Um, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who else won those races. Highland Real won the turf. Um, yeah. I mean, look, it was it was a great Breeders' Cup to be at. So I'm, I was very, very lucky to be there for that Breeders' Cup. and. Uh, um, you know, when you think about the horses you see, it's it's quite quite astounding because you just you forget sometimes that you see these horses. Like, uh, you know, um, I'm just actually having a look now because I, w- I wanted to pull up and just see see who was there. And um, yeah, Highlander beating Flintshire in the turf. Um, Tourist beat Teppen in the mile. Um, Lady Eli just beaten by Queen's Trust in the fill and mare turf. Classic Empire won the juvenile. Um, you know, it's 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 really quite something. I remember, I think the only horse that I backed to win was Taylor Coos, who won the uh, the Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile. And that was that was enough to keep me going, but it was still uh, yeah, <laughs> still something great.
0: Gosh, we'll have to get you back here when I'm there as well. Andrew, it was a true pleasure getting to chat with you and just you sharing your worldwide experience. I mean, you've been everywhere. Is there any Track left that you still need to visit? We haven't even mentioned the fact that you've been to Roy Ascot, Glorious Goodwood, because I feel like we're running out of time. But is there anywhere that you still would like to go?
1: I'd like to get to Longchamp for an arc. I've still been to Longchamp for an arc um, or Shanty for an arc, one of the two. Um, yeah, there are a few tracks I want to go to, um, but you know what? I've been very, very lucky so far. And um, yeah, thank you for, for allowing me to, to waffle on. It's um, always good being out of chat. So I uh, know I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you ever so much, Hog. You are a walking horse racing encyclopedia. Hold on, English. Encyclopedia. A wonderful professional who honestly has occupied nearly every single role in media one can find. So find him and his extensive Melbourne Cup preview, a must read, on Twitter at Andrew NJ Hawkins. And that's Hawkins, H A W K I N S. So do check him out. And thank you to the entire In The Money team for their continued support. And of course, find me on Twitter as well, at Naomi Tucker. That's Naomi and Tucker double K. As well as my first and last name, Naomi Tucker at live.nl, if you would like to get in touch via email. So please rate, review all the episodes, helping us get a larger fan base. Also... I will be working on the World Feed, the player show for the upcoming Breeders' Cup. I am so excited and honored to have been asked. Catch me on there. And if you're in Lexington, reach out. It has been two years since I lived in Kentucky. It's my pleasure to return again. See you all next week. Buckle up guys, there's going to be tons of content coming your way from the In The Money team in regards to the Breeders' Cup. I hope you haven't gotten sick of my voice just yet, as you'll be hearing it more often I'd say. Stay healthy, happy and safe. Catch you next week, same place, same time.